1: Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Hopkins, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast, the Founder Podcast.
0: Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know. and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm your host coming to you live from hometown, homegrown Melbourne, Australia. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. Um, we've got an amazing guest today. Like, wow. I'm so lucky to speak to these kind of like incredible founders. Uh, so today we're speaking with Andy Rockleff and he's the co-founder and executive chairman of a company called Front. And... He's also co-founded a company called Benchmark Capital. Uh, they've been, you know, they've invested in companies like eBay, OpenTable, Snapchat, Twitter, Uber. Um, Andy is a legit founder. Um, like he's done some incredible things throughout his career, and we really talk about Wealthfront and everything that uh, he's trying to achieve with uh, their investment service firm. So. We talk about all th- sorts of things. Uh, Andy, like he knows how to build and scale companies. Uh, if you want to like, we go, oh, I'm really pushing him. We talked about raising capital. What do you do if you, when you, like, what do you do for the money? Like what, what do these people do with the money? Like uh, I'm from a bootstrapping world. Um, we talk about lean startup. We talk about hiring. We talk about focus. We talk about why perseverance he believes doesn't lead to success. Uh, which is really, really interesting. This is an incredible conversation. Like we really hit it off. Um, I think you guys are going to really love this one. So that's it from me. Please do like if you are enjoying these episodes, please do share it with your friends. And also please do take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. I know you guys must have plenty of friends that are founders, entrepreneurs. At Founder, we're on a mission to building a household name, entrepreneurial brand that impacts tens of millions of people on a weekly basis with our content, whether it's through video, whether it's through audio, whether it's through written stuff, magazines, books, blogs, you name it. Please do help us fulfill this vision and mission to to really help shape the next generation of founders. So guys, that's it from me. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. Now let's jump into the show. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is how did you get your job? Which job? The the job like I guess the how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today?
1: Quite by accident. So I had been a career venture capitalist. I worked in the venture capital industry for almost 25 years, the last 10 of which were at a firm I co-founded called Benchmark Capital, and I had retired from that business with the intent of Spending my time giving back, and I had uh, decided to do so by teaching at my grad school alma mater, which was Stanford Graduate School of Business. I became a trustee at my undergrad alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, and my wife and I started a, a unique cancer funding initiative. And one of my responsibilities as a Penn trustee was to sit on their endowment investment committee and the idea for Wealthfront came out of some of my experiences on that committee. I see. And can we just take it back a step? Like, how did you uh,
0: like you founded uh, Benchmark Capital, which is which is one of the largest VCs um, around? Like, like how did that all come about? Did you did you um, like like what what led you
1: to to doing that? Were you were you running any um, businesses before or? I had been in the venture capital business for about a dozen years before, and uh, I spent two years with a pretty crappy firm called Harvest Ventures, and then about 10 years with a firm called Merrill, Pickard, Anderson & Iyer, which was probably one of the top five firms in Silicon Valley in the early stage investment arena, and uh, two of the five partners of Merrill Pickard had reached a point where they wanted to retire, and that left three of us to decide whether or not we wanted to take the franchise forward or become free agents and just manage the last partnership to a conclusion. So we chose the latter. Uh, Two of the three of us teamed up with three other people, one of whom had been a partner at another one of the top five venture firms that was in the process of winding down. And together the five of us started benchmark capital in nineteen ninety five yeah wow. and um just for the our audience that that haven't
0: heard of of benchmark, like can you give us um just an insight of some of the some of the startups that you've been able to back and and invest in
1: sure eBay uh, snapchat uber twitter juniper networks, Red Hat it's a very, very long list of very oh. successful companies, yeah and um you decided
0: eventually to to you said like semi retire yes and then um and then you you've you, you've become the co-founder of of Wealthfront and 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 how like i i've i've heard of Wealthfront um and uh, you guys um, I've heard of you guys on on some other podcasts and I'm curious like how did it all start
1: well one day i was sitting in a a pen endowment Meeting, the University of Pennsylvania endowment is about $12 billion. I think it's about the seventh largest university endowment in the United States. The premier university endowments are probably the best managed large pools of capital in the world. And the investment team was giving a presentation on how they generate their great returns. And it struck me that a lot of what they do is manual and spreadsheet based, and that if you implemented what they do in software, you could actually deliver something that closely approximated what they did to the masses, thereby democratizing access to this. And That was important to me. That hit a nerve with me because over my years as a venture capitalist, I had recruited a lot of people who joined companies that went on to great financial success and After they'd had their financial success, they would often come back to me looking for investment advice. And I could never tell them to do what I do because I was in the really fortunate position to be able to afford access to the best investment products and services. And even though these folks had made one to five million dollars, they still could not. And that always struck me as wrong because they couldn't afford the minimums. The best investment products have really high minimums. And so when I was listening to the endowment investment team talk about what they do, it just struck me that if you automated what they do through software, you could serve all these people who didn't have access to great investing.
0: Yeah, wow. And so you started off as ka So you've taken a bit
1: of a pivot um, yes. since, since you started. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, just about every successful technology company you've ever heard of has pivoted that they never succeed at the original plan. Now, they all revise history as though that's what they set out to do, but everyone pivots, and we are no exception. What we did initially was build a marketplace of investment managers who we vetted using the same methodology as the Ivy League endowments, and we also lowered their minimums from in excess of a $1 million to only $10,000 thereby attempting to democratize access. Now, the good news was that in the year and a half that we offered that service, the managers that we had vetted and included on our platform, in aggregate, outperformed the market by 4% net of fees. The bad news was nobody cared. (laughs) We only attracted about $35 million of assets over the course of that year and a half. So that was just a complete failure. The good news, though, was that when we reached out to people who had started an application but had not completed it, we asked, why did you not go forward? And they gave us a very consistent answer, which was, we would rather that you manage all of our money adequately and inexpensively than a portion of it superbly. The ka application was really only appropriate for the U.S. stock market portion of your portfolio, which should be only about a third. So the inconvenience of having to split your money up into multiple places made it not worthwhile. Well, the thing that people said they wanted was a lot easier to implement, and we built that prototype in about a day, and uh, within a few weeks, people were asking us, please take my money. In the end of the first year, we had $100 million under management. At the end of the second year, $500 million. And we now have about eleven billion under
0: Yeah, wow, that's incredible. And what, what, one thing that I find interesting, um, and this is from my own experience as well, is is when, when you do have a product and people are banging down the doors to uh, to get it, do you, do you think that that's like when you've hit product market fit? Because um, you said that like a, you know, you got you have been exposed to, to some of the, you know, largest, um, you know, investing in some of the largest tech companies in history. Uh, And and you said many of them have pivoted. Like, Is that when you know you're onto something, when people are really banging down the doors?
1: Yes. And the way that you can actually measure it objectively is if you're generating exponential organic growth. I actually teach, I don't know if you knew this, but I was the person who coined the term product market fit. Oh, no idea. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually, for the last... 11 years have been teaching a course at Stanford on the subject of product market fit. So one of the most common questions that I get is, how do you know when you found it? And the best answer that I've come up with is when you found exponential organic growth, meaning it just happens on its own. And the only way that you can achieve exponential organic growth is through word of mouth. And you're only going to achieve word of mouth if you truly delight your customers hmm so if we go back
0: even wind it back even further when it comes to finding product market fit you know for for the startups that you have worked with or when you're teaching you know Stanford University uh, students like when they're starting their business what like what what what's a good process that you recommend to go through to find that product market fit besides just shipping and putting your your product or your service out into the world and getting feedback like like how how many people do you, you recommend to speak to? Like, how often do you leave
1: it? How how far should you know? Well, there are two phenomenal books on this subject that were written by Steve Blank and his disciple, Eric Reese. The names of those books are The Four Steps to the Epiphany and The Lean Startup, respectively. I think of The Lean Startup as the New Testament and The Four Steps to the Epiphany as the Old Testament. I believe Steve Blank really changed entrepreneurship by suggesting that we apply the scientific method to starting a business. You know, it's funny, we learn it in third grade, we apply it to science, but no one had ever applied it to business until Steve suggested that we do that, where you create a hypothesis and run a series of experiments to test that hypothesis. And then Eric Ries wrote a book that made it much more accessible, it much more understandable. And the basic theory is that you have to start with a value hypothesis, which is the what, the who, and the how. What are you gonna build? For whom is it relevant? And how do you deliver the product? What's the business model for offering the service? Only once you've proven your value hypothesis do you move on to a growth hypothesis, which is how you cost-effectively acquire your customers. One of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make is they focus on growth before they've proven their value hypothesis. And the other big mistake that they make is they alter the what, not the who. If you have a compelling idea that's the result of a change that's happened in the environment, without change there's seldom opportunity, you shouldn't change the product for what the customers you're calling on want. Rather, you should find customers who want what you're offering. So you iterate on the who. See,
0: so how are you applying this to Wealthfront? Because uh, you said once you guys pivoted from Kaching, uh, you know, you, you you guys are in a growth stage now, and and you manage up, you know, over a, a you know billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars uh, in assets.
1: So what are we doing now? Yeah, in that regard. Yeah, like well, you... when, whenever we build a new product, we follow this process we literally create a hypothesis a value hypothesis for the new service and until we've uh, we've proven that it works and the way we prove it is through exponential organic growth then we're we figure out ways to acquire more customers cost effectively and then we start the process all over again for yet another new product or feature so for example we started with just investment management services And then last year, early last year, we started to offer automated uh, financial planning, which is the first of its kind. And then uh, soon thereafter, we started to offer banking services. You can now borrow up to 30% of your account value with no credit check and no paperwork the next day. Yeah, wow. So all of these services, you know, we ship a minimum viable product and we try to get feedback from customers and then iterate on it. See,
0: and and one thing, um, you know, when it comes to scaling, you know, one one way to scale your company is is you either you have a, an option of, of selling more of your product to existing customers, uh, or you sell, you know, different products to existing customers, or you find new customers to f- to sell you, you your existing products. So I'm curious, like, how do you know when to to launch a new product? And, and because focus is so key, how, how do you make sure that you can maintain
1: focus? Like, when do you know when to do that? You know, that's a superb question to which there is no right answer. <laughs> what, I, what I will tell you is there is a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business named Charles O'Reilly, who actually has focused his career researching this topic. And uh, he refers to people who are capable of, of doing this as ambidextric, ambidextrous entrepreneurs or executives. That The challenge in running a company is you need to both focus on exploitation of your current opportunity and exploration of new opportunities. That if all you do is focus on optimizing your current business, there's an arc of success, which you can think of as an upside down you, your business grows very rapidly and then plateaus and then it declines. If all you do is focus on optimizing your business, you might not start thinking about a new business until you hit the plateau or the downslope. And the problem with starting a new product line at that point is you can't, it's very hard to attract new employees to come work on it because you're perceived as past your prime. Yahoo is a great example of this. Or if you're public, you don't have a good currency to go out and buy new businesses to reinvent yourself. So the challenge is you've got to explore for new opportunities while you're exploiting existing ones. But first and foremost, you shouldn't start exploring until after you're sure that you've proven both your value and your growth hypothesis.
0: Mm, I see. And
1: cause because you could like,
0: you know, you could hypothetically you could work on, you know, one product for a long long time and keep scaling it like like we're talking
1: even, well if you're a yeah. google you can yes but not everyone is google
0: mm. yeah that's right so so how, how did you guys decide when to launch your next product like because because i think the reason i asked this question andy is i think as entrepreneurs we have what's called uh you might have heard this term shiny object syndrome yes. where where we, we start on one product we might you know Get it, you know, working really well and, and get it dialed in and and get product market fit and 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 growing it and and you know start start you know acquiring customers at scale and then you're like, okay, what's the next exciting thing? Because it's really I think it's the, I reckon one of the, for me personally I think one of the most exciting things is, is the start and and the early stages, but then it gets boring after a while. So so you know what like uh, like I'm just curious like like how do you, do you still experience this after after being in this world for so long or Well, I
1: don't find success boring. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean, right? (laughs) No, no, I I hear you. Uh, Look, what we did in our case was once we found product market fit, which is the proof of the value hypothesis, and we're able to find a channel of distribution to grow it, and that was an invitation system that was modeled after Dropbox, where Uh, Anyone who had a Wealthfront account could invite their friends, and if they accepted the invitation, both the inviter and the invitee got another $5,000 managed for free. So if you invited five of your friends, you got another $25,000 managed for free. And it was only once that was working that we then moved on to add another feature. Now, some of the things that we've built have been tremendous successes and have increased our growth rate. And some of the things that we have built proved to be duds. We thought they were great ideas, but if the dogs don't eat the dog food, they're telling you something and fixing something that's broken doesn't lead to nearly as much growth as improving something that is working. It's very counterintuitive, but very important.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a good one like fixing something that is working. Yeah. Okay. So, so how do you know, like, like let's say you're launching new your products, like how do yes. you know how long to keep persisting on it and when to, when to, to
1: let it go? You know, if the minimum viable product doesn't hit a nerve, adding more features seldom makes a difference. That's what we want to believe, but in fact, it seldom makes a difference. Instead of adding more features, you try to figure out a different audience who actually might care for it. I've basically reduced my entire product market fit class to one question. When people ask me for advice on product market fit, I ask them, do you uniquely offer something that people desperately want? Because unless they're desperate, they're not going to buy from a new vendor. If there's a good enough alternative, people will buy good enough. They only will buy from the startup if they're desperate. And the only reason they're desperate is nobody serves their needs. So if I deliver a product to someone who isn't served and they don't care, then I have to try someone else. And if after three or four attempts, I'm just not finding any resonance, it's time to move on.
0: Mm, I love that. That's that's a great breakdown. Thank you, Andy. So, What's next for Wealthfront? Like, uh, what are you guys working
1: on? What's exciting? Well, t- well, today we're an automated financial advisor, which we mean means we provide tools to help you explore whether or not you can afford to buy a home, whether or not you can afford to send your kids to college, whether or not you can afford uh, to retire, or at what age you can retire. We then also help you if you wanna set up a goal based on those explorations and even an account to save for those. And then we provide banking services as well. And we do all of this in a mobile uh, platform and we do it for an incredibly low fee of only a quarter of a percent and an account minimum of only $500. Now, our vision is to ultimately make it possible So that you can direct your deposit your paycheck with Wealthfront. And we take care of the rest. We'll automatically pay your bills. If you have an emergency fund, we'll we'll automatically top that off. If you have other goals that you're that you want to save toward, we'll automatically route money to them. We'll open up accounts if you need them, uh, whether they're at Wealthfront or elsewhere. And so you don't have to spend any time thinking about your finances. You can spend your time. On things that you most enjoy, whether that's your friends, family, uh, events, whatever. And hopefully we'll be able to get there in another three or four years. Yeah. Wow. That's an incredible vision. Um, you know,
0: one thing that I've found uh, when it comes to personal finance, one of the biggest things that I've learned is is just basically using the envelope system and trying to just automate and just know before, once the money comes in, and this is not just in personal finance, but also in, in, in business around managing cash flow. Once you know that the funds are there, um, you know, just just having buckets for them. And as long as you stick to those rules and buckets, it can be incredibly effective as long as you're extremely disciplined uh, with obviously your spending and also um, your saving.
1: Well, that's the beauty of software—is it's really good at implementing rules-based systems. It's actually a lot better at doing it than people are.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that's—and I think that's where the real power lies, right? So, like, um, I'm curious—like, to develop this software, um, you know, ha, ha, have you have you guys had to, to raise a significant amount of capital, um, like, uh, and, and will you continue to raise capital to to keep growing and and, and fueling growth because. Yeah, this sounds like, yeah, it, it sounds like a, it's an amazing vision, but a great challenge too.
1: It is. Well, we've raised a lot of money uh, it, over the course of our history. Over the last eight years, we've raised $200 million, 75 million of which came in December. And that money should last us through cash flow positive. And our hope is that, that we'll be in a position in the not too distant future to be a public company yes i see and just out of curiosity because um you know
0: from from my world and 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 what we're doing with found we're we're 100 percent bootstrapped and and i'm always curious like when you raise that amount of money what do you usually spend it on like is it is it generally hr and 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 customer acquisition well about
1: two-thirds of it is on people yeah so we have an engineering team of 85 people, but the the total company is about 150 people. And so supporting that every day is a significant expense. And then of course, there's the, the office space to house that many people. And then there are a number of expenses associated with running the brokerage platform that supports all of our investment services. So when you when you look at uh, all of those expenses, it adds up to a significant amount of money. Mm. So one thing that I've learned is
0: is when you communicate that vision, like you, you like you just eloquently did before, it's it's uh, it can be a very powerful tool to use in in attracting great talent to join your company. But what else, like what, like, what, like what are you guys doing to combat that challenge to, to get the best people? Because that's, that's essentially how you scale. You've got to find just some of the most incredibly talented people to join your company and, and, and help fulfill that vision and bring that to life.
1: Well, we're looking for people who are missionaries. We're looking for people who really buy into our vision and our mission of democratizing access to sophisticated financial advice a lot, some of the best people like to be mission oriented. And so that's uh, the the nature of the technical challenge and the mission are probably the two big in the vision are probably the three biggest things that cause people to want to join us. And how
0: do you find them? Like, what, what, what do you recommend? Like do you, are you guys doing like manual outreach or like, like, uh, like what's the best place?
1: We have an internal recruiting team of about nine people. Uh, three of whom focus on nothing but scheduling because it's hard to schedule all the interviews. We have people who are just sourcers and we have other people who uh, manage the whole process as recruiters. So we do all of our recruiting in-house and we also are fortunate that we get referrals from our employees and a number of people just uh, reach out to us.
0: Mm. And uh, if, you were, if you were just like when you were just starting Wealthfront, what, what would you recommend to, to, to our audience to, to attract really great talent besides having a, a really compelling vision and a great product um, that's, that, that's truly disruptive in, in the market that you're serving?
1: You know, I'm going to give you a disappointing answer. And, <laughs> and that is until you get product market fit, it really is hard to attract outstanding people. And by that, I mean, you've got to be a little crazy to join a company pre-product market fit, because if you're in great demand, Nathan, then you have a choice of companies that you can work for. And in Silicon Valley, you don't get that much less equity post-product market fit than you would if you join pre-product market fit. So from a risk-adjusted basis, you are far better served waiting until the company has proven that the dogs want to eat the dog food. So that means that you've got to attract what you can before you get product market fit, and then you can upgrade later. So you look for people who are truly excited by the mission and you rely on all of your personal networks and do a lot of things that aren't scalable to get those people to join.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So, Andy, look, um, I, I, I want to work towards wrapping up, but, but I'd love to hear just—not necessarily advice—but I'm sure you've got some insane stories just uh, from, from your experiences as, as not only a founder but, a, but running, you know, a, an extremely large VC firm. Um, like, is there any like crazy stories that you want to share that, that, that you think that would be really valuable to our
1: audience? I'm not sure I have any crazy stories in general. (laughs) We've we've had some very unusual entrepreneurs come through. We've had some uh, superb entrepreneurs come through. And the the wonderful thing about that business is it's so great to hear about the future before it happens. And when you meet someone who really has a compelling vision, it's almost as though you can't believe that it's not going to happen. And that was when it was most fun for me. Can you say that again? I said, when you meet people where you can't imagine their vision not happening, that was where it was really fun because it was just so exciting to hear how the world was going to change and how technology was going to enable that. To me, that was the most fun part of that business. Mm. But there's so many
0: people with these crazy ideas like how do you know who's actually got what it takes to to do whatever it takes to to make that vision compelling vision come to life and 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 who doesn't like what what did you well,
1: look for A big part of it was authenticity Were they authentic to the opportunity had they trained most of their career they didn't I mean they could have they could be young but was their career focused on the thing that they needed to do or were they just making shit up? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So authenticity is really, really important to success. Otherwise, just anyone could come up with great ideas and I don't think that happens. Mm. Great ideas find you. You seldom find them. Mm.
0: And it comes back to also um, that unfair advantage. You you mentioned um, that people... Like, have they trained their whole career to be able to, to to build what
1: they're what they're you know kind of selling you right? Yes. Um, now, if you look at most every really successful large tech company, the founder was really authentic to the opportunity before they started it.
0: I see, and and uh, when it when it comes to, I guess, um, you know, I, I I put you on the spot with the crazy stories, but um, maybe maybe you could give like a, a great story around just um, uh, let's say, let's let's say, let's say the, the, just never giving up.
1: Like I think like, you know, see, that doesn't lead to success. I think that is a huge misperception. Perseverance is not what makes for success in technology, at least yeah. insight does. So the recognition of an inflection point in technology is what, leads most technology companies to success, that the entrepreneur figures out, ah, this change in technology, because without change, there's seldom opportunity, allows me to build a new kind of product. And then I've got to figure out who cares. So I have to iterate on the market. It doesn't have to do with perseverance. It has to do with insight. And I know that's really disappointing to people who want to think that anyone can start a great company I don't believe that's possible. Yeah. I, I love your raw honesty because because that's what people say. Like
0: you you know, you just you just never give up. You just keep going, keep going, keep going. But it it's 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 finding that insight.
1: But such a small percentage of companies succeed, it can't be about persistence.
0: Mm. So when it comes to, you know, the ones that that, that don't that haven't made it Um, usually they go
1: on to start another company and like, not always, Uh, I don't think very few serial entrepreneurs build great companies. They build, they're more likely to build very small companies because in, in order to have a mentality, just keep starting companies, you have to do low risk, low reward ideas. In order to build something big, you have to take chance without risk. There's seldom reward. And if you've gone through it once, man, it takes a lot out of you and it's hard to try to do that again. So, why, 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 Wellfront? Why are you kind of doing it again? You know, I was so focused on doing social good when I retired from Benchmark that I felt like I had to do it, not like I wanted to do it. <laughs> so, I, I felt incredibly grateful for what venture capital afforded me in terms of lifestyle that I really wanted to give back. And that's why I was doing the things that I was doing. And when I came across this opportunity to democratize access to sophisticated financial advice, I felt like I I had to do it because the world needed it. And to be honest, if I had known how difficult it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it. (laughs) (laughs) It takes a lot out of you. But but I I continued to pursue it. It was a, a long trek until we found that product market fit and it's been awfully rewarding since. Yeah. Amazing. And and I'm curious,
0: like um do you think like you're on the other side of it? And um, you know, I, I think when it comes to kind of kind of that journey, a big part of when you achieve success is is, is giving back and now you're going full circle. I'm curious, Andy. Uh, can you have it all? Do you, Do you believe you can have it all? Like, is it at is it the ever same not? time? Yeah,
1: it, sure. There's pl- look different strokes for different folks. I think we're all wired differently, and everyone defines having it all differently. So, what is having it all to you? For some people, that might mean lying on a beach all the time. For other people, it might be having influence. It all depends on what having it all means to you. And uh, is it ever enough? Sure. I mean, I didn't do this for financial purposes. As a matter of fact, the mon- if, if I'm fortunate enough to make money on this, I'd like to give it to charity. So th- that's why I did this was for a social cause. And so I'm not doing this to, to make more money. I, I want to see my employees make money because they're working really hard. But that's not what motivates me to do this. And when it comes to, um,
0: you know, spending your time on a day-to-day basis, um, like, what what does that look like? I'm, I'm just curious, like, like how, how, how does your day begin and, and end?
1: It varies by day, but uh, I have... Like everyone in my position, I probably have a staff meeting once a week with uh, all the executives on my team. We tend to make decisions as a team. I try not to make decisions myself. I think that leads to a bad culture. Uh, I'm much more consensus oriented. Through the course of the week, I have one-on-one meetings with uh, each of my direct reports. Uh, I participate in our product reviews every week. We tend to have four client-facing development projects running in parallel at all times. And each of those projects has to present to the management team uh, their progress, including demonstrating code that they've built thus far. We spend 45 minutes on each of those once a week. So uh, that's time. Recruiting, I spend a lot of time recruiting because that's critical to growing the business. And then I try to make time for one-off meetings. Every two weeks I move my desk so I sit with a different group in the company to get a feel for what's going on and to get a feel for what's frustrating people or or what's exciting them or what's the spirit like in different groups. So just moving around and talking to a lot of people gives me help. And then, and then I'm fortunate enough to be invited by people like you to do things like this.
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, Amazing.
1: Yeah, it sounds you. You still like
0: one 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 thing I found interesting is you said even at the company at your size, you're still, um, you know, trying to 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 go on a deeper level. To to you said different groups you're speaking to one on one with. You're still doing one on ones to find out what's frustrating people, what's exciting, what's not to, to really manifest that culture.
1: Absolutely, and I also spend time training managers. So we have uh, every every month we have an extended management. Meeting, and, and I do a little mini case study for them because we want to develop them into being better managers to scale the organization.
0: Yeah. And um, do you uh, like how do you maintain that startup feel? Um, because as, as companies get larger and larger, they become more like uh, corporations, um, like how, how, or you know, kind of corporate, yeah, corporations. Like, how, how do you maintain that startup feel?
1: Well, our challenge is to push decision-making as low as possible in the organization. As I said before, if I'm making decisions, we're going to fail because I'm not the closest person to the issue. You know, if you think about the military, if the generals made all of the decisions on the field, uh, they would lose. So they have to trust their officers and the officers under them to make a call based on what's going on at the time. And so my job is to try to provide context and then uh, my VPs have to give context to their organization and then their managers need to provide further context down. So the more that we can push responsibility to the lowest levels, the more likely people are going to be satisfied and the more likely we're going to be successful. Are we successful at doing that every time? No, but this is something that we spend a lot of time Trying to get better at.
0: Mm, I find that very interesting. So you're essentially empowering every single person in the front team to to make decisions uh, and and not come to perhaps their direct report or team leader to to know what to do next. You want them to be able to make those decisions as much as possible, right? Whether yeah, that's uh, what we're trying to
1: do. We're not always <laughs> successful at it. Mm. And you know the funny thing about this that that I've learned from advising entrepreneurs, especially my former students, is that people know what to do. If they're capable, they generally know what to do. More often than not, if if they want help on it, they lack confidence in what to do. So what I've learned over time is to ask questions of someone who's come to me for advice to see what they want to do. And then I ask them, well, why then are you asking me about it? And they'll usually admit, because I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. To which I ask, well, do you know something better? And they usually smile and say, no. I say, well, then let's try that. You know, you, you've got to be, I preach this, you've got to take risks to take to get reward philosophy. And when you take risk, you're going to make mistakes. So one of the things that I preach to everyone in the company is you've got to make mistakes. Just don't true. Let's try not to make the same mistake twice, but it's totally cool to make mistakes. If we make no mistakes, then you haven't taken enough risk. So this is where I need to focus. My time is at the high level at the philosophy level and at the context level. And I need to really push risk-taking.
0: Yeah, no, that, that uh, really sits well with me. Um, one thing I was thinking was, was I, I once heard speaking to another founder that they said that, um, you know, they want to empower, similar to what you're saying, they want to empower their team to make, make, as, like make all the decisions or, um, you know, because that's how you also get leverage as a founder as you start to grow and scale your company. But, and they said that as long as they're right 80% of the time, you, you're winning.
1: Oh God, I think it's 55% of the time. (laughs) I think 80 would be unbelievable. I I read this amazing statistic a month ago Hmm. about Roger Federer. I'm a tennis player, and I'm in awe of Federer. So Federer had the best streak of his career the first three months of this year. He started 17-0. And during that streak, he had the highest winning percentage of points in his entire career. And remember, remember, his, the peak of his career was probably around 2008, 2009. But guess what percentage of the points he won in the best streak of his entire career? Oh, let me guess, like 30% or something. 56%.
0: Yeah,
1: wow. And that's the greatest player in the history of tennis in his greatest streak. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's crazy. So if, we, if we can be right slightly more than we're wrong, we're way ahead of the game.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love it. Well, look, uh, Andy, I could talk to you all day, man, but we have to work towards uh, wrapping up. Um, I guess just final questions. Um, first, uh, first of all, any any parting words or anything like you'd fi- you'd like to finish off on? Just uh, any, you know pieces of, of advice or words of wisdom you'd like to share just for anyone that's listening that uh, is, is early on in their, in their journey of building a startup? And, uh, and then where's the best place people can find out uh, more about yourself and your work?
1: Okay, sure. Well, I think the, the best piece of advice that I can give to entrepreneurs is it's not about the percentage of things that you do correctly. It's the magnitude of the things that you do correctly. So, you might only be right three times out of 10, but if those three things on which you're right have a big impact, that's far better than if you're right 90% of the time on things that have little impact. So, magnitude and impact is what matters, not percentage correct. That's the biggest lesson that I bring with me from Venture Capital. And the best way to follow me is probably on my Twitter, which is A Rachleff, A R A C H L E F F, or I publish a lot on the Wealthfront blog specifically about personal finance advice, but data-driven personal finance advice, which surprisingly is unique, and you can find that on the Wealthfront site at www.wealthfront.wealthfront.com. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Andy.
0: It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you, and uh, it was a great interview. You brought a lot of interesting perspectives, and I, I really appreciate your time.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, guys.
0: I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business,